Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, January 30th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. Joanne Cannon of Politico. Good morning, everybody. And welcome back, Erin Mershon of Stat News. Good morning. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So let us start with actually the first of our breaking news stories today. The Trump administration has unveiled its plan to allow states to trade their unlimited Medicaid funding for a block grant that would cap spending but give them more flexibility with federal rules and requirements. They are calling this new program Healthy Adult Opportunity, highlighting the fact that it's mostly aimed at the Medicaid expansion population from the Affordable Care Act, meaning adults who are eligible simply because they have low incomes and don't have kids or disabilities or are elderly. Block granting Medicaid has been on Republicans' wish list since the 1980s. It, actually, before I started covering health care, that's how long this goes. Nothing um, happened before you started covering <laughs> health care, Julie. But, but I think the biggest question here is, can they do any of this without legislation? Can they even block grant a piece of the Medicaid program without Congress saying it's okay? Well, I think there's, like everything else we talk about on this podcast, it'll end up in court. The question is how soon do you have to wait for a state to ask for a, the block grant? Do you have to wait for a state to get the waiver? I mean, there are, there are various legal interpretations. We will know soon when, when somebody sues, but it is certain that somebody will sue. The Republicans presumably – I mean, they say they've done their homework and they've looked at the statute and that this is permissible under the, the current waiver law. You know, Democrats are going to disagree with that. Ultimately, it'll probably be up to the courts to decide whether you need legislation. I mean, this is not going to happen tomorrow. But it's, it is really a historic achievement. As Julie noted, this the desire to move toward a block grant or at least a block grant option does get, go back to the Reagan administration. And it was part of the repeal effort in two years ago. And one of the things that Three sunk the now. repeal yes. effort. And states want flexibility. Uh, Republican governors ask for flexibility, but the devil's always in the details of, you know, how much of a budget cut do they have to take? You know, when push comes to shove, how much do they like flexibility and how much do they like money? So, you know, the best of both worlds, they want flexibility and the money. In this case, they would have, um, you know, a restraint on the growth of, of how much money, federal money they get. I've only looked at the fact sheet that they Just put came out, out a few yeah, minutes ago. We is, should make clear yeah. to listeners we're, we're like minutes away from getting this. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's, it's clearly breaking in it. And obviously it's not – it does not go as broadly as one might have anticipated, but there's some sort of interesting quirks here. One of them is that it, they would allow states to have closed formularies for drugs, which is, you know, sort of we've talked about this a lot, an advantage and a disadvantage. If you can limit the number of drugs, you can probably negotiate better prices. But what if somebody actually needs a drug that's not on the formulary? And, you know, so so and also they the Trump administration turned down Massachusetts request to have a closed formulary in Medicaid. But now they're saying that maybe in some cases you could. 
do we have they explained how why and how they're doing this, Kimberly? I mean, they might have to go for a block grant first, which I don't know that Massachusetts would do. Um, but again, I mean, this is something that is going to take a while. States still have to apply. We do hear from states that you know they can get fed up with the process of applying for changes to Medicaid. It takes a really long time. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of back and forth with administration officials, state officials. You get residents involved. You hold public meetings. I mean, it's a lot of back and forth. So there is that frustration. However, critics point out that in some years, it's very hard to tell how much money you're going to need from Medicaid. There could be an expensive blockbuster drug like the one that cures hepatitis C that hits. And then what are you going to do? What if you run out of money really quickly? What if you face a natural disaster? Or a coronavirus epidemic. Exactly. So there are a lot of different considerations and Or an trade-offs. economic downturn in, that makes many more people eligible for Medicaid. Right, right. So it's hard to tell how many states are going to want this. Um, for example, Tennessee has its program. It hasn't expanded Medicaid. So I don't know how it would even qualify for uh, the guidelines the Trump administration has laid out. Yeah. And that, that's one of, that was going to be my next question. The one state that has actually come forward so far and said we would like a block grant is Tennessee. But it doesn't sound like the guidelines that the administration put out today very much match what Tennessee wants to and do. And also Tennessee's is not a pure block grant. Tennessee's is block grant-ish in that they get a block grant, but if they need more money, they can get it. If they want the flexibility and the money. It's just what I said. I mean, they they want the you know there are Democratic governors who want more flexibility too as 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 Kimberly just pointed out it's a it's it's processy um, you know if you do have an idea or something you want to try in your state you can't snap your fingers and do it there's a lot of process a lot of review so governors want that to be speeded up it's just a trade off is how are they going to define a block grant do they really want the block grant um, are the are the conditions that the federal government is going to set be things that a Tennessee governor would actually want. And again, as we just noted, Tennessee hasn't expanded. So there's a mismatch there. And we should back up a little bit and talk about how Medicaid works for the, for the non-nerds. And we did do a whole episode on how Medicaid works back in your feet a couple of months. Um, but basically, it's a shared program between the, the federal government and the states. And the states get unlimited money to, to the extent of how much the federal government provides. In, in wealthier states, it's 50 cents on the dollar. In poorer states, the federal government provides up to, I think it's 83 cents on the dollar. So the federal government pays more than half of the cost. The states, uh, there's something states are required to cover and other things that are optional. Interestingly, one of the things that's optional is prescription drugs. I mean, but every state does it. Yeah, every state does it. But the things I mean, that are nominally optional but are not optional. I mean, right. It just become right. Nursing home right. care is nominally optional. But every state, I, uh, I think, covers it. I think uh, nursing home is mandatory, but community-based oh, community community based long-term, long-term care, care is, is optional. optional. You're right. Uh, but there are also optional populations, and states have a lot of flexibility to determine where eligibility is. I was talking a little bit earlier after Hurricane Katrina in, in uh, 2005. Uh, we were talking to the Louisiana Medicaid director who pointed out that parents in Louisiana at that point could only qualify for Medicaid if their income was less than 15 percent of poverty. And somebody on the call said, 50? She said, no, 15, one, five. So some states set their eligibility really low. And that's sort of – and the idea here is that states could have more flexibility about benefits and presumably eligibility, um, but they would in exchange, you know, allow a limit on the on the money. One of the things I find really interesting that we haven't talked about yet is the timing of this and the politics. <clears throat> it is January, but it's also an election year. And I think as you mentioned, Julie, um, sort of 
touching Medicaid at all was one of the things that sunk the 2017 repeal and replace effort. And I think it'll be really interesting to see if we see that same sort of swell of support for Medicaid that we saw back then uh, as we head into 2020. Except that this is more this is um, an option for states and it's likely to be conservative states that ask for it. So that same dynamic may or may not play out because you can still say it's optional state. We're giving states the flexibility to improve their uh, you know, there are Medicaid programs if they choose to. And I think the the rhetoric around it might be a little different. But 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 Aaron makes a really good point is that what we saw in 2017 was an Medicaid emerged yeah. as a issue that voters cared about, paid attention to. And one could argue, based on what happened in 2018, voted on. Uh, so do we uh, did we ever get a definitive answer to the question of what about states that haven't expanded? I mean, this is obviously, as we mentioned, top aimed at the expansion population under the Affordable Care Act. Those those low income adults who are not disabled and not elderly and not parents. Um, but there are a number of states like Tennessee that have not expanded. So would this be perhaps a way to encourage them to expand? It's like you could expand light. <laughs> I don't think we know how states are going to respond. I mean, there are what, four, is it 14? 14, 14 haven't expanded. Um, and, you know, they've resisted. Uh, yeah. And a lot of, you know, for a variety of reasons, ideological and economic. And I don't know that this changes anything. Particularly, they may want to wait and see how it plays out in the courts. That if you go and expand something, and then the courts say, no, you can't have a block grant, or it's tied up in court for five years, three years, whatever. They, I mean, if I were a conservative governor who had, um, resisted Medicaid expansion and the federal funding for it up to this point, I'm not sure this would tip me over. Maybe I, I set up a task force or study it, but I'm not sure I would go for it um, on the basis of this announcement. Yeah, I think the only thing worse politically than not expanding is expanding and then having to take it away. Yeah, that won't work. I mean, we it, it's hard to take things away as we've learned when they try to repeal Obamacare. As we have learned. <laughs> Now, in the phone call with reporters this morning, Seema Verma, who runs the Medicaid program, was asked specifically about Tennessee. And she sort of dodged the question and said that um, they had started crafting the guidelines around these block grants before Tennessee got started. So she didn't really answer the question, but she kind of said, you know, this is separate from that. I, 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 was, I heard that part of the call and I was thinking, she's pretty much squashing Tennessee here. <laughs> I that mean, with that, she didn't of, say it specifically, right, but right. it sounded like, yeah, Tennessee's going to have to go back to the drawing board on this one. Probably. probably. All right. Well, let us talk about the novel coronavirus from Wuhan, China. Uh, it is spreading more widely. Now, there are five cases confirmed in the U.S. At least that was the last I saw last night. And more than 6,000 cases confirmed in China, which is already more than were confirmed to have SARS, which was the scary respiratory disease from that part of the world that emerged in 2002 and 2003. We're also seeing the first reports of cases in in people who have not traveled in China, confirming person-to-person transmission. Uh, Aaron, what's the latest we know about how this might impact the United States beyond the fact that it's rattling the stock market? I think there are a lot of questions. The last number I heard actually was that we have seven thousand, more than 7,700 cases in, in China, China and more than 170 people have already died. Um, but I think at least the last that I've heard from public health experts is that the chance of a widespread outbreak in the U.S. seems limited, um, but it's sort of so early and I think there's so much unknown scientifically that that could change very rapidly. Um, so I think as we were talking about before, we still don't know exactly how this virus spreads. We don't know if it's just people who are symptomatic who are spreading the virus or if it's possible that people who have very mild cases or even no symptoms could spread it too. We also don't know how many mild cases there are out there. I think health officials in China aren't tracking mild people. It's a lot harder to track people who don't go to the hospital and seek care. So it's a different level of tracking going on there. 
And because we don't know either how many cases are out there or sort of uh, what what the numbers look like uh, in terms of spread, uh, I think it's really hard to tell how severe it is and how potentially fatal it is. We don't know the numerator or the denominator for those of you who like fractions. I mean, if the point Aaron just made is really important because if there are, you know, another 20,000 mild cases out there where people just think they have a cold or a cough or, you know, one of the melanosis and have not sought treatment of don't realize they have it. And we don't know that this is the case. We don't know. But if there are X number of mild cases out there, well, it means it's more contagious, but it also means it's less deadly. We do know a lot in a brief period of time, including the Chinese did share the the genomic sequence, and we do have a diagnostic test, and we're going to have a quicker, better one probably quite quickly. Um, And that'll really help because if people start showing up in emergency rooms and you've got a you know, more or less instant tests, you can say, you know, run of the mill bug, you know, no, you're in isolation. Um, you'll know fast who, who, who has this disease and who does not. Um, I mean, it's hard to tell if someone coughs, what, 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 what's making them cough. There's a huge amount we don't know. And yet there's also quite a bit of global, you know, everybody has stood up and took notice. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're seeing, you know, uh, airlines canceling flights in and out of China. I mean, we still it's have... a cruise ship. There's someone in has Italy. a fever on that they're stopping 6,000 6, people. I mean, I just saw a quick report. In Italy? Off the coast of Italy, 6,000 people are stuck on a ship while they try to figure out what's wrong with one person there. And then they may have to monitor everybody. You know, maybe they don't make them stay on a ship, but maybe they do have to watch them for two weeks and make sure there's not something spreading there. I, it, it's funny because, you know, before this all broke, we were having, and I assume we still are having, a fairly not great flu season. It's, you know, almost the beginning of February. The, it's sort of the height of flu season. And, you know, it, I guess what we really don't know about this yet is whether it's more deadly than the flu. It might not be. Um, you know, Right we, now, what we know is looking not great. I mean, yeah. rough numbers seem to be sort of a 2% mortality rate. I mean, that's high. Um, but not as high as SARS, but it's high. And it's, it's I mean, it's clearly a frightening thing. It's, that doesn't mean anyone listening to that should panic, but it, it is a concerning phenomenon. It's, it's what we've all known could happen. In the meanwhile, Joanne, you, you brought us a story that talks about the, the, the fallout, the political and economic fallout of this, even though even while we're trying to figure out you know, what to do from a public health point of view, the, the economics of sort of disease panic are, are real. Right. I mean, the stock market is responding. I mean, we should point out that um, President Trump has put his health and science people in charge of this. You know, we've seen people like Tony Fauci and CDC director and HHS secretary who, 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 whatever you think about his politics, and obviously HHS is a divisive thing. He was in office um, at HHS during prior outbreaks and, and has been through this. You know, was, I think he was there for anthrax. He was there for uh, SARS. I think definitely he was there for, for SARS. Yeah. He was there for some of the flu outbreaks. So he's, he has, ex- as the secretary has experience. So this is the White House last night set up a task force. It's a combination of the senior health officials and national security officials because obviously there's homeland security and transportation, State Department evacuation, and our diplomatic relations with working with countries like China, working with WHO. So there is a task force of, what, 15 people or so? Um, All that, men. Yes. Um, named last night that's very interdisciplinary, interdepartmental, and and many professional people with experience in, in this kind of field. On the other hand, Secretary Ross, the Commerce, the Commerce Secretary, Secretary, got on television this morning and said, and I'm reading this, I'm quoting, um, every American heart has to go out to the victims of the coronavirus, so I don't want to talk about a victory lap over a very unfortunate, very malignant disease. But the fact is, it does give businesses yet another thing to think about, to consider when they go through their view of supply chains. So he's saying, I uh, 
uh, I think it will help accelerate the return of jobs to North America, some to the U.S., probably some to Mexico as well. In other words, China's sick, come here. Now, one of the things that struck me is he mentioned the African swine flu coming from China. The African swine flu actually came from Africa. Hence its name. Yes. <laughs> didn't come from China. And and if he was – and SARS did come from China um, – this a virus does not have borders, right? You're not going to build a wall to keep out a virus and keep in jobs. So that was just Secretary Voss. It's interesting too. I think there have been concerns uh, about some folks on the right sort of calling for restrictions on travel, restrictions on trade. And I know what the World Health Organization recommendations are absolutely not to do that because uh, not only can it not really contain a virus that doesn't have borders, as Joanne said, but also it can sort of make it or discourage countries from being transparent about the outbreaks that they might be experiencing. Yeah. Also, just get it can be hard, particularly to get medical supplies and also things. True. People who need to be in and out. I mean, this was during Ebola in twenty fourteen. This was discussed, and they decided. Trump tweeted about it in twenty fourteen. Yeah, uh, and and he's been relatively quiet. Yeah, I keep watching his tweets to see whether he's going to call for some kind of a travel ban because, as you recall, during Ebola, he attacked President Obama several times for uh, not banning travel. One of the things that's going on this afternoon is the World Health Organization is meeting again to decide whether they're going to be declaring a public health emergency of international concern. Which they have had like three chances now and have not. I think this is their third meeting or fourth meeting. So they're meeting again. And one of the things that this does is actually allow the head of the World Health Organization to start telling countries, you know, please don't restrict trade, please don't restrict travel. The final decision is up to individual countries, but they can still, you know, put out that kind of high profile message to tell um, to tell places, look, you have to keep this going so that people are reporting, so that we're getting them quarantined, we're getting people help so that we can track this thing. And there are travel advisories. I mean, the United States government has said, you know, unless you have a really good reason, do not go to China. So, um, and there's restrictions around, we, as we know, the province that Wuhan is in. There's, the Chinese have imposed uh, restrictions as well as uh, other countries. Have also imposed of course, this was incredibly bad timing for China because Winter it was right at the Chinese New Year when basically the, it's like Christmas vacation here. Basically, the entire country travels um, for that week. So it was, it was if you have something that's going to spread, that's a really good way to spread it, um, which is probably why we saw it, I think, so quickly in, in so many other countries because people were traveling for, for the holiday. And also Wuhan is has 11 million people. Yeah, but, so. but this is like one of the fastest moving stories that we have covered in recent times. It is not the glacial pace of Congress, viruses mutate. You know, as a virus moves from, um, and none of us are immunologists or virologists, but as a virus moves from an animal, in this case it was probably a bat, although they're not positive, as it moves from an animal to a human host, it changes. And it can get milder over time or it can get more dangerous and more contagious over time. Um, And we don't yet know what's going to happen here. And, you know, we do know what's already happening is contagious and bad. We don't know how contagious, how bad. You know, none of us have crystal balls and neither do the virologists. I mean, it's going to be a a huge amount of energy to monitor and contain this. All right. Well, we'll keep following this, obviously. Um, In less infectious news, the Supreme Court this week has allowed the Trump administration to start enforcing its new public charge rule. Even while the case challenging uh, its authority to change the rules gets pursued in the lower courts, this is a proposal that came out last fall that tries to make it harder for basically all but wealthy immigrants to enter the U.S. legally or actually to get green cards once they're here legally. Um, Somebody explain how these rules would change the current situation. Right now, it just makes it harder for people. It creates another burden for people to come in and it's having um, 
it is believed to be having an impact on people who are already here in terms of their being afraid to get um, to seek help. Particularly Medicaid. Right. Medicaid and CHIP um, or I think also food stamps and some other social services. Um, there was also another sort of larger legal issue that's applicable to both health care and immigration and, and energy and environment and everything else is that um, there's been – you know, as we've all seen, you know, every – significant controversial issue in our country is now being played out in the courts and courts are, you know, district courts are are, are imposing nation, nationwide national injunctions. And this case uh, um, basically said, no, go on that, you know, what court. The Supreme when, Court. Supreme said, Court. And was it said, Illinois? Yeah. Were they a case? Of, I, I think whatever that the, the injunction can only apply in, in that Well, district. no, I think there was – I think there's a separate one in, oh, in Illinois. It, it so I think says, the one they struck down was from New York, I think. Yeah, it basically says that, you know, a court, a court in Texas or a court in, you know, Vermont or whatever cannot – Impose, you know, a lower court cannot impose nationwide policy. Cannot do a nationwide injunction. That's a that's a larger legal issue that's going to trickle out. That was my next question. Um, <laughs> it, no, it's 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 and it's going to you know when you have you know the liberal a liberal court like a relatively liberal court like the Ninth District in California is you know stops Trump things and then you have you know a conservative court like the Fifth District that would stop a Democratic president's things and they become national injunctions. Um, you know, both sides have reasons to both love and hate that. And that's what's been going on. I mean, the, the Republicans stopped an awful lot of the Obama administration's regulations and now other judges have stopped a lot of the Trump administration's regulations. And I think this was just the Supreme Court coming in and saying, we're not we're not ruling on the merits of this case. I think this was sort of miscast in a few stories. Um, but we are saying that, that these individual district court judges cannot be slapping nationwide injunctions um, or the government basically can't. Or I think one – was it Gorsuch who, Gorsuch who – it was mostly – it was not a, an official opinion but Gorsuch actually wrote something and he basically said the government can't function if individual you know, district court judges anywhere in the country can stop anything nationwide. So this was basically the Supreme Court saying at least for the moment that um, – that no, please stop doing these nationwide injunctions, and if you don't stop, we will stop you. Yeah, but basically, the, the whole going back to public charge. I mean, if you're trying to be an immigrant in the United States, you have to prove that you are not going to cost the taxpayer a penny. Is basically what it comes down to. You have to show that I can buy my own health insurance, I can pay my own bills, I can do this. I can, you know, I'm. I'm I mean, there are all sorts of. We all know what they say about immigration, but for those people who are trying to immigrate, you have to come in. You have to show that you're not a public charge. You're not a burden on the taxpayer. And to circle back to what we were just talking about with the coronavirus, the concern is that people won't seek medical help um, even when they're sick and if they conceivably have something that's transmissible and that's a problem. Um, that's sort of one of the issues here. That's why Medicaid had not been part. I mean there's always been a public – you know, public charge rules. You can't just sort of show up in the U.S. and, and get a green card and, and um, you know, go on all, all manner of, of social welfare programs. But there are some – exclusions from that and one of them has always been for seeking health care. This case continues also. Um, also. And finally this week in Man Bites Dog News, the Trump administration last week announced it is going after California for violating federal law instead of the other way around. California has been suing the Trump administration on quite a lot. On a daily lot. basis. Yeah, on a daily <laughs> basis. Uh, the, over a state requirement for most insurance plans in California to cover abortion. California is actually one of six states that require insurance coverage of abortion. The others are New York, Maine, Oregon, Washington, and Illinois. The administration says California 
California is in violation of something called the Weldon Amendment. That is a rider carried in the annual spending bill for the Department of Health and Human Services that says recipients of federal funds, in this case California, cannot discriminate against a health care entity that does not pay for or provide abortions. Although the Weldon Amendment has been on the book since the 1990s, I covered it when it passed. Uh, this is the first time I think it's been invoked against an entire state. This could turn into a pretty big deal, yes? Yeah, California has vowed to fight this. Uh, the Trump administration announced it on the March for Life, which is the um, giant anti-abortion rally that um, happens in D.C. every year in protest of Roe v. Wade, uh, which legalized abortion nationwide. And, um, you know, it's it's meant it, it definitely, you know, was timed as, as Trump tries to, you know, cast himself as a pro-life president. He's been called by anti-abortion groups the most pro-life president in history. Um, so he certainly is you know, continuing to demonstrate, sort of looking at every corner of, of what, you know, can be done and uh, and acting. Um, but I, I think other states should be on the lookout, too. They sort of hinted at that on, on a press call last week. Yeah, they did more than hint. <laughs> they were they were they were pretty like um, if you if you're a state and you have this law, we're probably coming after you too. Right. I just couldn't tell why they went after California first. I know California has had the law for a while, but but as you mentioned, other states. Do well, there as had well. been a there had been a complaint. There had been a lawsuit that got thrown out, um, and so the federal got, basically they said that the that the the two entities that were suing because they didn't want to have insurance that covered abortion um, didn't have standing, and so the federal government basically in that case has to go in and do it itself and that's they, – they issued a notice of violation. But right. they can – I mean one of the things that I didn't know until I listened to the press call is that in theory they could not just take away California's money that they get under health and human services, which includes its half of Medicaid. Um, but they could also take away anything else that's in that particular spending bill, which means any money they get for education, for the Department of Education or for the Department of Labor. So, I mean, it could be an awful lot of money that, that California wouldn't get. This will be a very interesting you know, way to see this play out. And how would they go about no longer enforcing it? I mean, these plans are already set for 2020. People are covered by them. Yeah, that's a good question. They have 30 days. I mean, one would presume that it, that if California were to say to insurance companies, you know, going forward, you no longer have to cover this. I mean, it's not – the Weldon requirement doesn't require that it not be covered. It just requires that you not discriminate against those who don't want it. This has been sort of an ongoing thing since the Affordable Care Act with the sort of – one of the things the Affordable Care Act was supposed to do was to make it clear which plans cover abortion services and which ones don't. And it really never did. I've actually written a couple of stories over the years um, that people on both sides are frustrated by the kind of lack of transparency. I guess with the new regulations that we talked about last week where you're going to have to – where insurance companies are going to have to charge extra um, for your abortion coverage, I guess then people will know. Um, yeah. I mean it's incredible to think that at the time, you know, the issue of abortion rights almost, you know, torpedoed the Affordable Care Act. But now you have so few Democrats. Democrats in Congress who are anti-abortion that, you know, if they were to take up health care reform again, I don't see it being a sticking point. Not for the Democrats. But Not it, for Democrats. Although exactly. I think there are still some some moderate Democrats who who would – I mean they're not – you're right. There's not very many – only a couple. Yeah, who, yeah. you know, stridently you – know, who actually will talk about the fact that they're anti-abortion. But there – I think there's still a lot of Democrats from swing districts who would rather not be faced with, you know, a vote. Uh, you know, in fact, that was one of the reasons that they decided last year not to – they were going to take a test vote on taking the Hyde Amendment out of the Labor HHS bill and they decided not to so as to not put – not force the vote for some of those swing Democrats who were not happy about the possibility. 
Right, um, right. Explicitly putting it that the government would be paying for abortions. Yes, yes. All, all saying, abortions, right. Um, well, eliminating the Hyde Amendment, that yeah. the, they would lift the ban. Right. Um, which, yes, under under Medicaid law would effectively require yeah. a, a, a abortion to be covered just because of the way the Medicaid law is written. But that was that was a lot of the liberal Democrats wanted to have that vote because they just wanted to, you know, they weren't going to win, but they wanted to sort of put a put a stake in the ground for it. And um, and that was, I think, Nancy Pelosi um, said, maybe we just shouldn't have this vote right now. So, I mean, I think this is always going to continue to be an issue. But I'm, I'm sort of intrigued that the – I mean, this is something – that I expected the George W. Bush administration to do, and they never did. I mean, they didn't really pursue the the anti-abortion agenda to with the zeal that the Trump administration is going after it. Other presidents have addressed the march to life by video. Trump was the first president to go in person on the day that this California situation was announced. He's so, a really interesting vessel for this cause because he once described himself as very pro-choice. He has talked openly about you know his romantic relationships. And, uh, you know, here he is being dubbed by anti-abortion groups as the most pro-life president in history. And, and he is. I mean, he's done uh, – his administration has done way more than previous – than either, you know, the Reagan administration or the George H.W. Bush administration or the George W. Bush administration. I mean, he, just, he has basically done their bidding. Um, he, I guess they're – they are not a guess. And they are an important right. part of his base. That includes funding Planned Parenthood because, you know, they are out of Title X and there are now moves afoot over just the last few days to actually allow states to exclude them from Medicaid. That's an, another long complicated saga that we can discuss some other time. But the funding of um, for Planned Parenthood is, is they, they, they knocked out part of it. They didn't knock out all of it. Government funding, not private funding. Um, and that's going to that's continuing. That's still a battleground. What's interesting here is sort of what this means politically because obviously Trump has sort of solidified his anti-abortion base. But I feel like there's been so much that it's been hard for Democrats who support abortion rights to to really, you know, rally around it. Just stuff coming at you constantly. So that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Kimberly, why don't you go first this week? Sure. Well, I picked a piece from Billy Penn, which is part of WHYY, the uh, Philadelphia uh, NPR affiliate. And um, the title is When Philly Paramedics Arrive, Many Overdose Victims Have Vanished. Um, it's by Max uh, Marin. And I've sort of been keeping an eye on this because naloxone, which is the opioid overdose reversal drug, um, has become much more widespread. Uh, pharmacists in a lot of states are allowed to provide it over the counter. Um, the Surgeon General has encouraged a lot of people to stock it. So that means when someone sees someone overdosing and they have uh, naloxone or Narcan, which is the um, the nasal spray version um, on them, they can revive someone. The idea of this, though, is that once someone is revived, they then should be connected to services. So they should go to the hospital. They should see a paramedic. Um, and hopefully, the, in the ideal situation, be connected to care. However, they're finding in Philadelphia that once people are being reawakened, they're sort of running off before the paramedics get there. So, um, one you know, one of the drawbacks about Narcan, especially, is that once you awaken from a, dr a drug overdose, you then have incredible withdrawal. So the chances that then that person is going and um, using heroin or another opiate again are pretty high. An unanticipated uh, side effect, Joanne. 
Um, this is a piece from the um, Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting in partnership with ProPublica Local Reporting Network. It's by R.G. Dunlop. And it is a pretty astonishing story called How These Jail Officials Profit from Selling E-Cigarettes to Inmates. So even though Kentucky has um, limited vaping in public buildings and uh, – you know, some, some bans on smoking, et cetera, the, the, not the jails. And not only are they selling them in the jails, the jail officials themselves in several cases are the ones running the companies the, that on no bid basis are getting the contracts to sell the e-cigs to inmates at sometimes fairly high prices. So it is um, – they say, you know, it makes the easier that, you know, that the inmates like them and it makes and that they can't be turned into weapons and theirs are safer. Um, it, but yes, they are the both the jails are using it to get in revenue to run their jails and the jail uh, people who are officials in jails are making money off of this. Um, and the irony of e-com- this being e- form of e-commerce of Kentucky land of tobacco yes. Yes. with them. Yes. Making money in jails off of e-cigarettes. OK. It's quite convoluted. It is. Aaron. Okay, I chose a piece called uh, – it's from Stat and uh, it's called it's the, it's the Insulin Stupid, How Drug Pricing Simplest Case Study Became a Top Issue for 2020 Democrats by my colleague Lev Fasher. Um, and it's a really interesting piece about how um, sort of on the campaign trail, obviously Democrats have made hay of lowering drug prices as a campaign issue. But Lev writes about uh, sort of how easy it is or how much easier, I guess, it is for these candidates to talk about insulin pricing in particular because it's an old drug. It's been around for a long time and yet the prices have really spiked in recent years and not to mention we've seen even people dying from rationing their insulin. Um, and he rode around with a woman in Iowa Iowa, excuse me, named Janelle Lutkin um, who is passing out vials to the various candidates uh, to sort of highlight the importance of the issue uh, to her uh, in part because her son passed away from rationing his insulin. I am going to actually tout my own story this week. It's called U.S. Elections 2020, Understanding What's at Stake for Healthcare, and it's on NPR's Health Blog Shots as well as on KHN.org. It's my attempt to boil down what voters who care about health as an issue should know as primary voting gets underway in the early states. Now, I'm sure nothing in it will come as any surprise to any of our loyal listeners or viewers, but when you all get asked for something simple that people can use to get a grip on what's being discussed because people are very confused, here is something that you can recommend. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at E.E. Marshawn. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Leonard K.L. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.